After an incredibly quick victory at the Battle of Zila, Roman general Julius Caesar said, I came, I saw, I conquered. Or did he? Well, since Caesar did not speak English, we can assume he said something a bit different. Instead, Caesar proclaimed, Veni, Vidi, Vici. Veni, Vidi, Vici. The original Latin just flows so much better off the tongue than the English translation, no? The English version obviously lacks the alliteration, the concision, and the bellicosity of the original. But the conversion of Latin into English is, in fact, the least of our problems. We can scarcely imagine how much more, how much infinitely more, gets lost when we translate Biblical Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh, into other languages, most notably English. As a child, I grew up learning that when Moshe pleaded with the Pharaoh to let my people go, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused. But did the Pharaoh really harden his heart? Or, put another way, what happened to the Pharaoh's heart in the original version of the Torah? To finally get to the very heart of this question, I sat down with Rabbi David Roberts. Rabbi David Roberts is the rabbi and spiritual leader of the Kahal Adas Yisrael Synagogue located in the heart of Berlin. Originally from Sunderland on the north coast of England, Rabbi Roberts worked for many years as a rabbi and principal in London before arriving in Berlin almost five years ago. He has his own YouTube channel entitled Thoughtful Torah with hundreds of video lectures on Jewish philosophy, halakha, the Talmud, and Torah commentary. Due to a recent and Baruch Hashem entirely unsuccessful terrorist attack on his synagogue, Rabbi Roberts has used the accompanying media attention to serve as a leading voice in the fight against anti-Semitism in the German capital. Rav Roberts, welcome to the Shrift. It's great to have you here. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure and an honor and a delight. A new experience for me. And I think I mentioned to you I have not done a podcast before, but... I look forward to the exchange. As do I. As do I. So I'd like to just your. I'd like to start with um, just a bit about about you and and your relationship with Judaism. Um, I noticed that you, of course, you are very learned in in Judaic studies and Torah and Kabbalah and Talmud. Um, but you also have an interest in 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 Western literature. Um, we've talked about Kierkegaard. We've I noticed actually in in your house in your bathroom you have a very a very uh, impressive collection of of secular books. But of course it is in the bathroom, which I found symbolic, maybe maybe without justification. Um, I'm curious. How you divide your time up between Torah studies or Jewish studies uh, and secular? What's the kind of ratio or, yeah. You're really getting straight into the heart of the matter. You're really sort of picking beneath the surface of who I am um, <laughs> and making me feel uncomfortable, which is great, which is really, as Jordan Peterson would say, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really important. So as a communal rabbi, I... Of necessity, my time is not really so much my own. I love nothing better than learning, in the broadest sense, um, Torah in in particular, and even when I do engage, it's, it's interesting you mentioned literature. I kind of hold myself back. I don't know if you noticed of the books that I have. So I have a little bit of poetry, but um, I can't afford myself that luxury of indulging in, you know, Keats or Shelley or whoever. So the areas of secular knowledge that I do read and enjoy, I come at it from a perspective of seeing how it dovetails, or indeed not, with Torah thinking and trying to think that through and work that through. Um, and as you've correctly said, I have another, my main library you've seen in my in, in, in my room is, is our Sfarim. And it's interesting, in Hebrew, I, we call them Sfarim, and the others I would always call books. Mm. A, dis, a subtle distinction which is often lost on my 
sometimes Israeli counterparts because books are books and in Hebrew there's one word Sfarim so they say Sifrei Kodesh or Sifrei um, Chol and indeed you've picked up on an, on an interesting point. Um, it's a bit of a refuge, my little room, um, much to my wife's chagrin. Um, she sometimes can't get me out of there because the... And, it, and of course I have books on science and, and, and philosophy and other stuff outside of the little room as well. But it's it's kind of, yeah, it's become a little bit of a sanctuary, if that isn't a contradiction in term, not in the sense of sanctity, but you, you're with me. So yes. I, I, how do I, do, back to your original question, how do I divide my time very badly? Um, and um, given that the, the demands of being a rabbi in Germany, of any community at any time, really, you're a servant to the people and you have to be there to serve them. And never forgetting the word rabbi actually means a teacher. So always remaining connected to learning, learning textually, learning from other people, learning from situations and then transmitting, creating the relationships and the, the, the environment of, of, of trust, I suppose, that enables one then to share and, and impart information as well. So I spend, I would say, a larger portion of my time learning and teaching Torah, but I have a keen interest and I do try and keep abreast, in, especially in certain topics, science, psychology. I'm currently reading um, Robert Sapolsky's Determined because I'm fascinated by, for example, determinism versus free will. I actually actively search out for books on subjects which interest me, such as the interplay between morality, ethics, neuroscience, these sort of philosophy, human behavior, history as well to some extent. And I sometimes will deliberately seek out books by smart left-wing thinkers, not just because I'm a masochist, but because you need to test and challenge your own ideas and not just, and this is actually one of the problems. I think Lord Sachs called it today narrow casting. We live in an echo chamber and you know, the Google algorithm will pre-select the news feed and all this other stuff, and therefore ideas are never tested. And we're mm. back, and that's cancel culture, and that's very much into the whole woke thing. And that is so incredibly sad because I need to be able to defend and to listen and to hear instead of talking at each other, but actually listening. And therefore, I will read left-leaning thinkers. And now, so take, let's take you. You know, you mentioned you want to Harari. Um, a lot of what he says makes in a lot of sense. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everything, but he's clearly a very smart man, um, and he has he has a lot to say. And therefore, I'm, I have absolutely no problem reading him as well as I don't know. Uh, I mentioned Jordan Peterson before, but it's not quite in the same category. Jonathan Haidt, uh, let's say, or, or or people like that. So I think it's actually it is important. And when I say dovetail, it it it, it means that ideas have to be tested on their own merit, and. They have to be weighed up. And if something is blatantly contradictory to Torah, then I have a problem with that. You are listening to The Shrift. Interview 14 with Rabbi Roberts. Vaera. I read the Torah every year the the parshot mm. i started doing that about 9 years ago mm. like reading it cover to cover mm. and each year of course you the first year it's all new and i mean mm. you know it's some of the basic stories mm. about mm. the 10 plagues and stuff and then it's exciting each year you pick up, you become more and more familiar with it and now i'm at the point after 9 years where and i don't study it like intensively during the week and mm. I've never been to yeshiva but you start to like okay uh, there's some things you remember more each year mm. I'm just curious um, what it's like for a rabbi uh, in your um, with your background who how kind of comfortable or how much can you kind of um, finish the sentences of the Torah so to speak uh you know, someone speaks and you can, you know exactly what they're going to say so you can finish their sentence. Do you, is it, what's it like for, for someone like you when you hear it in the synagogue? Do you, do you, do you know each word? Or what's, what are surprises that you have still? Um, That's a great, again, yeah. a, gr a great question, yeah. Steve. You're really picking, getting under my skin. So I'm going to give a very, a, a mini introduction because I think it's really, really important. 
and, and that is the the perspective and the approach and I think again that does I'm thinking back to our first conversation in, in, in my house which I think was very much about this and you were pressing me quite hard on I forget exactly what it was but this was the this was the point so I'm going to utilize an idea by Rav Hirsch Rav Shamsun von Hirsch who um, likens the the Torah when we say the word the Torah you know we have the written law and we have the oral law sure and one is incomplete without the other. In fact, he likens it, he likens the, what you and I would call the Chumash, the oral law, right? The Torah, the five law. books, the five, the, yes. That, those are like short notes right. to a lecture. And I think I may have shared this with you. Short notes to a lecture, which are, act more as, well, they act partly as an aide memoire. The genius here is where it becomes very difficult to use a really good analogy because we have ideas in our lives that we never revisit because there's nothing more to revisit. So two and two in, is four, that's it. We, we learn it at a very early age. We never need to revisit it unless, of course, we are Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead or whatever, and then we need to sort of write a 400-page book to prove why it is so. But that's esoteric. Um, mm. we, there's nothing more for us. It's done. We're done. We move on. In Torah, the, the gr- our greatest minds, like you say, we encounter those same words the very same words, and yet we are challenged and we find new and deeper layers of meaning, again, which is only because of the Hebrew. The minute you translate it, it becomes one-dimensional and monochromatic and it can't really carry more than one layer of meaning. But we revisit these in, with the parasha every week and find new and deeper and modern, more, more, not modern is the wrong word, but more ideas are contained within it. Because if the Torah is God's infinite wisdom captured within a finite number of words, there's a paradox if there ever was one. Yes. Mm. And that means that it has multi, it is multi-layered and, and it is true, has to be true at every level. So for example, the thing that, 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 always strikes me is one of our greatest sages, the father of the oral law, so to speak, Rabbi Akiva, hmm. at the end of his life, he goes back to the beginning and he writes a, a Kabbalistic medrash called Otiot de Rabbi Akiva, where he digs beneath the surface of the shape and the meaning of the letters themselves. He's come full circle. Hmm. It's, um, it's, cha- it's a challenging idea. And again, it has to be experienced. So we have, so the way we look at the Chumash is it's not it is like no other text it cannot be really be compared to any other text because it is so many different things it is a legal it is primarily legal it is Torah Sivalanu Moshe God well Moshe that's another story why we say Moshe not God but we are we are this is the word of God as explained and accompanied by this oral body of instruction because otherwise it actually makes no sense yeah. And yet it's all, and yet all of these infinite, infinite layers are somehow, somewhere in the text as well. And thus in the 19th century, sort of when you had the assault uh, from reform, Judaism, etc. So the rabbis such as the Malbim, such as Rosh Hashanah Hirsch and Rav Mecklenburg and others realized that they had to respond by demonstrating how the beauty and the wisdom of the oral law is all to be contained within the text and that is the genius of uh, at one level at least of the Torah so we keep yes so the answer very long rabbinic answer to a simple question it was actually a very profound question which is our perspective to this text is it is infinite it is divine and yet it has to be understood and something that we can live it's relatable but we never treat it merely as a Shakespeare or something where you can speculate and you can, it's a whole different approach. So the sort of in the world of academia, where you would take a Kafka, uh, uh, whatever it is, and, and, and you would speculate and your perspective is as knowledge, as, as valuable or as valid as anybody else's, provided you can find some sort of support. And it's, well, who knows? This, it doesn't work this way. We first approach it with a reverence. Mm. It's divine. It's the word of God. And there is a, 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 there is peer review. We spoke about that as well. There is a system. This is a text that has been studied and peer reviewed and critiqued, perhaps like no other, with incredibly great minds. And yet always new, new things are found within it. And that is how it has to be. 
do you want to maybe just quickly explain or say a bit about Ben Yehuda and then how he created modern Hebrew out of biblical Hebrew? If I, if I had anything um, um, uh, vaguely smart to say on the subject, I probably would. I have not really, to be honest. Yeah. I can talk about biblical Hebrew. I yeah. can talk about, and it's interesting, you know, we call it Hebrew. We don't call it Hebrew. We call it Lashon HaKadosh. Yeah. And that's in, in, in and of itself fascinating. The Rambam writes, for example, the reason, why is it called Lashon HaKadosh, the language of holiness? And he, the Rambam puts forward a fascinating idea. He says, because there is no descriptive name for female genitalia. That's what the Rambam writes. It's a quite a fascinating idea. I'll leave you with, think about that. But the, what do we, why do we call it Lashon HaKadosh? Why don't we just call it, I don't know, Ivrit? Why, do yeah. why wasn't it always called Ivrit? And this comes now. Great we, question. <laughs> you. You're not the only one that can ask a great question. Yeah, you should ask me. Switch so, the interviewer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. here we get to a, another fascinating point. The the idea, and this is admittedly more of a mystical idea, an idea that's found in our esoteric writings, which is the idea that language generally is, however it evolved, without getting into that whole conversation, but it is primarily a an arbitrary set of symbols mm. which facilitate communication. Yeah. So I don't need to bring out a hammer and nails and make a table each time I want to say the word table to you. So as long as we're agreed, but there's no innate or inherent connection between the word table and the, a four-legged mm. wooden structure. However, in, and forgive me, I'm going to take you on a quick Kabbalistic journey, and that is God created the protoplasm of creation by first creating letters. And those letters have spiritual energies such that when they are uttered, if that's the right word, because here's another whole problem, God can't speak, he doesn't have a mouth, but whatever. But when they are uttered by God with the intent of creation, it is that formulation that then becomes prescriptive, not descriptive. So it brings into being, by the virtue of the formulation of these letters with which he, each of which he's invested, there is a certain spiritual energy. When they are put together, they create. Therefore, when Adam and the creation is of a form that is appropriate to the, that dimension. And as reality morphs down into the physical world, it takes on a particular physical shape. And therefore, if we were able to do a re, sort of a reverse engineering, which is really what Adam is asked to do, when God parades the animals before him and says, you have the job here, I give you the job of naming the animals. And, and, and Adam looks at this ferocious creature with a mane and a tail and a, and he says, ah, Arye. And God says, way, well done. The Pasuk says, whatever, whatever Adam called it, that was its name. Duh, to quote that you know, famous 20th century philosopher Homer. Duh, of course, God gave him the authority, so he called it a lion. Big deal. Well, what's the, no, what's really happening there is he got it right. It means he was able to deconstruct the creature in front of him and recognize that at its core root it was an aleph and a resh and a yud and a hey that's what it is mm. that's lashon Kodesh. it is the language of prescription of creation of reality itself not just arbitrary and that's just a very brief a very brief introduction it's admittedly it's a kabbalistic idea but it helps us and therefore for example we have the word shame and sham says the maral a name and there there it is that is its essence oh. they share the same again that's why we can do things like etymology we can do things like um gematria which is not just uh, it is not just arbitrary and I, I'm well aware of Pico and the Christian Kabbalists and numerology and all that sort of stuff this is at a whole different level um, t if Torah is true, it is true at every level, right down to the shape of the letters. Um, and then, of course, the challenge is knowing what to do with it, <laughs> to live by it. So very elegantly, eloquent and eloquently said, I will definitely um, go back and listen to that if I ever need to explain it to somebody else, because uh, <laughs> that's, uh, it's hard to explain that concept. And I've heard it before. I've Actually, it was part of my dissertation a bit, but you said it very well. Thanks. So I guess, I mean, language is always flawed, other languages, because they have to, they can never get to the actual thing. It's just mm -hmm. a flawed medium to express the thing in itself, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, but Lashon Kodesh doesn't have this um, hindrance or doesn't have this, uh, It's it, it transcends that, that or it is 
It, it is, is. It is the thing in itself, <laughs> and it's also incredibly precise. Yes. Okay. Well, let's. So, obviously, then there's this uh, modern Ivrit, mm. which was derived, we might say, from yeah. Lashon Kodesh, but isn't considered as having this same divinity or this transcendent quality. I would say. Yeah, that's yeah. But the thing is, ninety percent of the words are the same. Um, so sure. you know, the, the, besides for uh, besides for the words which are um, technical, you know, uh, taxi, <laughs> babysitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a bunch of words we've got to. I've got to come up with a word for a traffic light. So ramzol. Now, that's not lashon hakodesh. That's clearly of writ. Because remember, every letter is itself a word. Aleph right. means doesn't it means to teach. Aleph bet is a bayit, it's a house. Gimel is to bestow. Dalet is either a door. Hey means to give. Vav is a hook. I didn't know. Zion, I mean, never thought about it like that. But every, right. Because because it's a concept, it has to be. Yeah. A letter is a concept because it is going to form a cosmic formula to create stuff. So it has to have its own meaning. And it is itself made up of other letters. So Vov is Vov Vov. This is just true in, in Lashon Kodesh. As far as I'm aware. Not for English. For as, yes. I mean, you know, let's say a tea. The word tea. Uh, where you can tea off in golf. You can have a yeah. cup of tea. Mm. You can... There is absolutely no connection pers- in, innately or inherently between the shape of the letter, the, 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 the enunciation and the thing, and these disparate activities or objects that you are describing. Whereas in Lashon Kodesh, you have to find it. Oh. They they all have to be all conceptually linked. And back to Rav Hirsch, who I've, I've mentioned, does a lot of work on this amazing thing. So, for example, Vav is a, a hook. It's also the letter for and. Vav is and because it's yeah. a hook. That's exactly what it is. It, connect, to, it, connect, it connects and it keeps going. And... and uh, In fact... The ancient Hebrew of the Torah, the Lashon HaKodesh, does not state that the Pharaoh hardened his heart. Rather, the Torah employs three separate verbs to describe the Pharaoh's repeated refusals. The first of these verbs, whose root is kashe, could roughly be translated to mean that the Pharaoh made his heart stubborn, or perhaps that he made his heart hard. The second of these verbs, whose root is kaved, could be translated in a few ways. Yit kaved, can mean either that the pharaoh made his heart heavy, that he made his heart honorable, or even that he turned his heart into a liver. Finally, the third of these verbs has the root of chazak. Yit chazek, roughly translated to, the pharaoh made his heart strong. In season one, episode 14 of the Shrift, I put forth the argument that the Torah was using these words ironically. According to my argument, the Torah spoke, ironically, to describe the toxically masculine behavior of the Pharaoh. In refusing to let the Hebrews go free, the Pharaoh was behaving as an iron-fisted strongman to his own detriment. He saw himself as acting strong and honorable, chazak and kaved, when really he was just acting like a stubborn, hard child, kashe, akshe. Rabbi Roberts informed me that the great 19th century rabbi, Samson Raphael Hirsch, had also been struck by these three different roots used to describe the pharaoh's refusals. Hirsch, in fact, saw in these three roots a three-state progression that are described as a downfall, which played out in the pharaoh's psychology. As Rabbi Roberts explained, the pharaoh's mind underwent a three-phase devolution. This type of psychological demise is not only tragic, but also human, all too human. In fact, we seem to be witnessing elements of the perverse darkening of the Pharaoh's mind amid today's debates on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Hirsch theorized that the Pharaoh's demise, encapsulated in these three verbs of refusal, moved from the hardening to the heavying, and finally to the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart.
so I always grew up, you know, in my conservative Jewish milieu, sitting around the Seder table. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh hardened his heart, Mm -hmm. right? I heard this probably a thousand times in Mm -hmm. my upbringing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure in Hebrew school we said the Pharaoh, probably when I was told the story as a child and not the Torah version, but just the the, uh, summarized version, that Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. He was a... Mm. Real jerk, that Pharaoh, right? <laughs> that was kind of the image I had of him. Mm. And then I, reading the Torah, reading mm-hmm. the Parsha, when I finally learned Hebrew, I said, whoa, like, he's not, it's not saying hardened. Mm-hmm. It's it's saying chazak, sh- making mm-hmm. strong, mm-hmm. and kaved, making heavy or making um, honorable. And I just thought, like, okay, whoa, that changes the meaning a lot of mm. hardened. Mm-hmm. I mean, from my perspective. Because I always thought of chazak and kaved as actually compliments or mm-hmm. kind of positively connotated word. Mm-hmm. At one point, or I actually did some math. 11 times it uses the shorash chazak, strong. Well, yeah, eight times is kaved, meaning mm-hmm. honorable or heavy. Mm-hmm. And three times akshay, which is stubborn. I think Akshay is the closest to the heart in his heart translation, mm. and that's actually the minority of the times mm. it's used. Mm-hmm. So, general question is, I mean, what do you think about this translation, hardened his heart? So, yeah, great again, <laughs> great question. <laughs> and you, you, this is it. You're, you're beginning. This is learning. This is learning. This is looking at the text, looking at the words, noticing different words are used, and. The Torah is not in it just for literary style or flair. Uh, so that a word is very precise. And why? So your first question is, why use three words when you can use one? Um, and they each must connote something different. And there's, there's an element that you've, if I may suggest, that perhaps you've missed out, which is the process, the timing. You need to look at all of these and understand at which at which stage was it, is, is, is his hard... Is he described as being hard or chazak or kasher or, or kaved? And why is it at that stage? And then, of course, which is, I, I don't want to preempt your next question, but no, bringing God into it, because some of it he does himself, and then some of it is God is doing that to him, which raises all sorts of yeah. philosophical and moral questions, which I'm sure you're going to get to later. So what I'd, what I'd like to share with you is I, I there are numerous uh, um, approaches to this. I particularly like... The approach of Rav Hirsch, which I'm going to again, which I'm going to, going to share with you, and he he speaks about this, and this is really his 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 thing, um, is to focus on the very precise words and give them um, strict definition, and then and then see how that plays out. You cross reference them against other places in Tanakh, in Chumash, and see how how does it fit in, and what layer of meaning does it add, and and he 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 says as follows, and I'll just share his idea the way I understand it. Um, and it, it, it's, it fascinates me at a few levels because, especially today in the field of psychology, we have, um, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, and uh, I'm especially um, conscious today. I'm going to talk about the war very briefly without, without being political, but um, for my sins, I'm on X, um, Twitter, formerly Twitter. Mm. And it's... It's obviously it's the Wild West, so people pretty much say, especially since Elon Musk took it over, so you the, the you can you have much more latitude to um, to to be offensive, etc. Which I personally feel is not a bad thing, but that's another story. Uh, leave that because I think ideas will test themselves out, and when you cancel people and you you don't allow them, let them express themselves. Let the t- ideas be tested on their own merit, and I have a lot of sympathy for that personally. I'm not sure that's a Jewish perspective because we have lashon hara, etc. But the the the, 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 the point is, and, and you think to yourself, one of us here is crazy. You look around and you see these two opposing camps. Either Israel is this genocidal root of all evil pretty much in the world, or you have this other side which is, hello, we're doing every, no other army in the history of the world has done what we have done to try and defend. Now, the, 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 the polarities, the extreme views they're no they're, they're so far apart it's like you shake your head in irre, irrespective of where you stand but you shake your head in disbelief and wonder and, and i admit to being guilty of watching some of the uh, proceedings in the uh, so-called uh, court of justice international and watching the two sides and, and this is what is going on over here so cognizant of all of that 
when a person is under threat, such as Paro was, with ego, with power, with control, the way that you respond or not, or what you even hear, there is so many different things. There is what uh, Daniel Goleman of, of um, you know, emotional EQ, emotional intelligence calls, you can get an, an amygdala hijack. And we know today that uh, uh, people who think or who think they are thinking, we now actually with fMRI are actually able to show that they're actually not thinking. We can demonstrate, we can show the neurological pathways and show that they're not thinking. But people still think they're thinking. But in order to think, you first have to listen. And so here... After that brief introduction, I'll sh share with you what my understanding of what Rav Hirsch is saying. He's saying, the first thing is, kosher means to be hard. If you are hard, think about a barrier, something that is impervious. Paroi was not inclined, he wasn't absorbing, nothing was going in. Mm. He was, stuff was happening to him, um, impacting him and his society and his country, and he was so far removed from not only taking it on board and distorting it or misinterpreting it or blaming this one or that one or the other. He wasn't even there. Aksha means it is tough, it is hard, it is impervious. Nothing even went in. It didn't even touch him. That's the first stage. That's the specific meaning of Aksha. It's the first time it's used. Hard, hardness, hard mm. translation is for Aksha. Yes, correct. First instance. Correct. Kaved, mm. on the other hand, and here you've come with something, again, Hersheyan. You have honor and weight and that's exactly these these two words are conceptually linked because i honor that which is weighty mm -hmm. that is the very concept so that and but that involves by definition that involves a a subjective judgment that is judgment i give kavod i honor this person this value this and not something else that means i have taken on board something so i've let something i've absorbed and the question is, what waiting, and then I make a choice of what waiting to give to something, and thus whether I honour it or not. And do I follow it through in with action? So that's, a, that's another stage. That is a stage of taking on board, but I am going to weigh things up and thus honour certain things and not others. And I am choosing, even though, yes, I've been affl afflicted with blood and frogs and one thing and another, um, but I am going to misattribute or to, to, to misconceive what is really going on over here, and thus there will be no action. That's COVID. And by the way, there's another one which you missed out, which is COVID, which means liver. Mm. And the, there's a medrash, again, it's slightly esoteric, but it's, it's not a Zohar, it's a medrash. The medrash says, and it says, I will harden his heart. It says the medrash, no, actually what it means is, I will turn his heart into a liver. And that's obviously figurative. What does that mean? Because the heart, what is a heart? A heart is a pumping blood. A liver is congealed blood. They're kind of opposites. And it's the notion of having an absorption of information and pumping it back out and round, and rather it becoming frozen, as it were, congealed. I've taken it in, and that's it. It's not going anywhere. This ain't going anywhere. Again, just showing how those three words can absolutely indicate a flow, a, a process, a thought, and how they're all etymologically linked. Chazak, on the other hand, hmm. so is... It means like making his heart into a river, in this case. In, in, again, obviously, metaphorically. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, figuratively. So... So again, so you know, let me go to the third one, and then we'll go. We'll do. We'll do a brief summary. Chazak, on the other hand, is to listen, is to absorb, is to understand, and to get it, and yet, and yet, to strengthen one's resolve, despite the correct perception and knowledge, and knowing with absolute and total clarity what is going on and the correct ability to interpret the situation and yet for reasons of ego or whatever it is to choose and therefore arguably the most perverse of the three not to do anything about it so we have a process says Rav Hirsch and if there are mistakes in the understanding it's mine and certainly not his this is the way I understand what he's saying again kasher means nobody there's nobody home you know, it's like a, 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 a protester at a, two people standing at the opposite end of the road the, 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 from the river to the sea and the other one singing Am Yisrael Chai. Hello, you guys, you may as well be at home. There's nobody home. Nobody's, neither side 
It makes zero impact. When I'm not home, I'm not open to listening. I'm not listening to what you say. All I want to do is shout out you out and drown you out. Both sides. That's kasher. It's hard. It's impervious. Nothing's going in. Mm. Kaved is stage two. There's something going in, but because of the distortion of bias, I am choosing to miss, to, to give the wrong weighting to, to what is happening, and that's why I'm not going to respond. Because I've made the wrong confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance. I, I'm absorbing, I'm taking it in, but I will, oh, it's, you know, you, you, you explain it away, right? Mm. Chazak is arguably the most perverse where, oh, I'm open to listen. I will sit and listen and I will even get totally, I will get totally and be able to intellectually understand totally what you're saying and Possibly even in the deepest, darkest recesses of my soul, acknowledge the veracity of your claim and the, the, the legitimacy even. But you know what? For other reasons, I'm going to choose to be heart strong and to do otherwise. Mm. The, the, the depth of the human condition. Just one insight, which I thought it this spoke to Hirsch. me. This was this is rough Hirsch. This is rough Hirsch. Yeah. Which is quite... It's yeah. just, again, just a that. small example of how you can take these three words and, and show how they talk about different processes. Now there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done to go back into the text and to see how that all fits into the timeline and all that sort of stuff. I haven't done that, to be honest. Well, it's okay. I have some more questions which maybe we can will help uh, further uh, flesh out uh, Hirsch's theory, which mm -hmm. I find really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. Um, because, well, I've, I'm happy to hear that he was also... I guess everyone who reads it would, sure. have to, would be interested in these words. But, um, so my theory, um, or what my idea or theory when I read it was like, um, and I guess maybe Hirsch had the same idea, but in a more, uh, much more thought out way, was um, that maybe mine is like a rougher version of, of, of Hirsch's theory, but... Today we learn a lot about, we hear a lot about in history and, and today about rulers who were, I guess we might say strong men. They tried mm. to, they tried to rule through stubbornness, through mm -hmm. intimidation and fear mongering. Mm. Um, and the superficial image of them was they're strong. I mean, we mm. have the word strong men, right? Mm. And they're, oh, look how we might call it like a toxic masculinity <laughs> type of honorable, right? Mm. Like I'm an honorable man, right? Mm. Or I'm, mm. And I was, I kind of read it, okay, the Torah is punning or using these words ironically, like tongue in cheek. Um, and that the Akshay is kind of what the para really was. He's really stubborn, but he's trying, mm. he's, he thinks he's strong. What do you think about that theory? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Originally, I'm all, I'm all for, Original, uh, original thought. The next stage would be, as a Torah scholar, as a budding Torah scholar, Steve, the next stage would be to then go hunting for some support of some sort. Mm. Textual or... or, or um, in, you've, got to, you've got to find some support because even if the idea may well have uh, um, objective legitimacy in and of itself, but... And it doesn't clearly oppose anything in Tyra, but that so that doesn't necessarily mean where does it take you? It, it, so it, it is possible. It is possible that uh, that. But it would have to it would have to explain why it was done that way. And and if I were you, I would I would start. Don't you know? Don't give up. You know, we we everybody has. We say in davening. You know, we say v'ten chalkenu b'taratecha. Please, God, give us my, our chalik in your Torah. We each have a unique way of looking at things. And there's a safer there, no doubt, waiting to be written by you. But there's there's work that needs to be done, in, sure. again, in terms of the procedure and, and, and the process. So if I come up with an idea which is radical or original, which happens every now and again, um, I will then start, okay, I have the tools and the background and the, the, to start searching and seeing if I can find somebody that will bring some proof or... or buttress it give it some give it some flesh flesh it out it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting idea it may well be correct i have no idea we have to go and look at the sages and 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 uh see what's already been said and not just 
it, it, we don't all have the... Uh, it, it's a, I suppose it's a little bit like, it's not quite a science. Yeah. But you did your, your PhD, I know, on, on, on Kafka, right? Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't dream of opening my mouth about Kafka. I once, you know, read um, the castle thing many, many, many years ago. But I wouldn't, because you will be, your expertise in that area clearly far, far outweighs mine. And you will have read the, what the scholars have to say. and you So you have a, a very, very strong working knowledge of that. And you need to try, if this is something that interests you, is to try and, which clearly it does, which is, is awesome, is to develop the skills and the knowledge until you're able to get somewhere further that you are then able to, in, um, I suppose, have, have some authority and weight by, by virtue of the broad and deep knowledge of, of, of the subject. But I don't mean to, sorry, I don't mean to sound patronising. No, I mean, no, no. It, it means there's, there's yeah. a, I want to be encouraging because I think it's a, it's a fascinating idea and your literary bent can, brings an interesting angle to bear. And that's, that's sure. awesome. Well, I actually, I think when I first started making my podcast, I didn't realize how much, um, how, I mean, I was a little more, I guess, uh, young and I don't know how you say, I don't want to use the word arrogant, but maybe, <laughs> I guess I went back and listened to it and I said, who are you, Steve Weinberg, to be making <laughs> these claims? You're not a, a rabbi, but anyway. You don't. The Torah yeah. does not belong to rabbis. Okay, sure. That's really, really important, if I may. Yeah. We are probably the only profession whose entire focus and job is to do ourselves out of a job. Nothing makes a rabbi or a teacher or a parent happier than their child outshines them in Torah. Hmm. Okay, so... Getting back to Paro and, and his heart and his stubbornness or strength, he, um, as I see it, him as he as a ruler, this kind of approach wasn't very effective. Like he lost essentially his entire labor force through his stubbornness. His whole plan was just a total disaster, I would say, right? Mm. Like his approval ratings afterwards probably went way down. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking a bit about um, like Machiavelli and his mm -hmm. idea of a good leader mm. and at least in the stereotypical sense it's like this strong man feared by his subjects mm. um, and mo and I mean you might say the pharaoh is this type of leader I mean we mm. don't have to Ma I think Machiavelli is much more nuanced than that mm. um, and then Moshe by contrast who's the Hebrew of the, the leader of the Hebrews mm -hmm. um, he doesn't He's 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 we see, he's written as the he's described as the most humble mm. humble man in the world mm. I believe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of course he's he's a bit shy and mm -hmm. he's he's has a speech impediment speech impediment he he's negotiator um, but he can also be at times uh, I would say very hard right mm -hmm. like in the, in in uh, Vayikra and mm -hmm. putting down rebellions and mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. um, what. What is the ideal ruler, I guess, in, in, in Judaism based on this story? I mean, can we, in, can we infer anything about leadership? Uh, again, another great question. Yeah. Absolutely. One of my pet topics. It, it's uh, absolutely. So first, just on Machiavelli, um, I, I think the expert, if I'm not mistaken, is, is um, Darcha Keltner, uh, who writes on Machiavelli that he, he um, went to look for the evidence to back up the idea that this this Machiavellian type of leader actually succeeds and he found that it actually wasn't there. And the one who writes most, I think, convincingly on this is uh, one of my newly found heroes, uh, Rutger Bregman in Humankind, um, has a chapter on this and he debunks quite, from what I can see, I'm, I'm no expert, the idea that the Machiavellian ruler wins through in the long run because all that usually that happens is that when his shameless ego um, manifests itself, eventually another strong man will come along and just depose him. But to win people, um, it's actually humility. And here you, you've, you've hit on something quite, quite powerful and quite amazing. Um, and I want to go back to names. I want to, let, let's see if I can close the circle. Let's see if I can close the circle. There's, there's a playful little passage at the beginning 
of Shemois. The book is called the Book of Names, mm-hmm. Book of Identity. And there's a there's quite an amazing uh, um, passage, which is playful. And a man went from the house of Levi and he took the daughter of Levi. We know who these people were. <laughs> it's Amram, yes. right? And mm-hmm. it's, But no name. And they have a child, no name, hmm. right? And it goes along. And then, also, of course, you have the, uh, um, the, the midwives, one of whom is his mother, who's given the wrong names. And then we have, he finds himself in the river and he's taken out by the daughter of Pharaoh and she gives him a name and it is that which sticks. He's now Moshe. And the idea, what does Moshe mean? So I'll share with you one idea from the Sforno, Italian medieval commentator. He says the most beautiful idea really ought to be a fridge magnet. Um, he says, because he actually, he actually asks, and some of the commentators talk about this. Um, first of all, Moshe then actually then becomes, is it, in, is it Egyptian word? Is it Hebrew? And that's another whole fascinating story. Um, but... If he was, she says, why did she call him Moshe? Ki min because I drew him out of the water. In which case, surely he should have been called Nimsha, because it's the passive. He was drawn from the water. Instead, it's in the active. It's Moshe. He draws. What's going on? And the Sforna says very beautifully, he says, Moshe umemalet acherim mira'a. He will draw and provide refuge to others from their troubles. A leader draws people away from their troubles. He is able to identify with, understand what's going on in their world. He's able to be the prince of Egypt and yet and not be subject to the servitude and the slavery and be brought up in the lap of luxury and yet to go out as the Possek says, and he goes out on that day and he was 13 years old, we are told. He went out and he became big. He became big. He became his sense of self expanded to incorporate the troubles of others. Unlike Gandhi, and uh, there's some fascinating, you can talk about those who come from uh, what background they come from and, and in, have the ability to rise and inspire uh, uh, revolutions. But somebody who is utterly, has no connection in terms of his upbringing and culture with what is happening to those he, who he may know is his brother, and yet his heart becomes so big and he intervenes when he sees an injustice with one guy hitting another one and and then he to the point that he doesn't give in and he has to flee from his life of luxury and he rises to become Moshe he remains humble and he is focused on one thing and one thing only and that is doing the right thing and drawing others away from their troubles and their problems and that is the essence of Jewish leadership that doesn't mean you're a doormat that does not mean that he knew who he was. He knew that he and only he was the agent of, of bringing down the Torah. He knew that. Um, and it's that ability to say, well, on the one hand, I, I am a leader. I have strengths. I have responsibilities. But never let it get to my head because I was given those opportunities and skills and talents. And therefore, it is my job to, to use them. So even though in in objective terms, I may well be quantitatively or objectively much higher than other people but in terms of uh, subjectively it's all about what opportunities were you given where did you come from what what are you making of them and therefore he remained always remained truly humble and we see this time and time and time again king david who is is is, is uh, 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 cursed by shimmy bengera and he says god told him to curse leave him alone no big deal and yet he's also able to act decisively as a king it's, it's having that balance, and we're back to head and heart. So we've gone all the way back to, to names in the name of Moshe, and, and we've gone all the way back to that balance between head and heart, the, the, the knowing what is right and remaining, having integrity of spirit and remaining humble and leading and drawing others. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's maybe that bring, take, brings it all full, full circle, perhaps. Okay, well, that answered my question perfectly, and I thank you so much for your time. And uh, that I threw some very big questions at you, and I'm so uh, so honored and p- 
pleased that you were able to provide such wonderful answers. So thank you. Steve, it's been my pleasure, my privilege, and I hope I uh, said something of some value. And as always, it's always you challenge me. And this is, this is terror. This is learning to challenge me and not to, you know, not, not, not to let me get off easily. And you, boy, do you do that. that when we speak in our mother tongue, we have the most refined and precise means of expressing ourselves. It is so effortless and comfortable for us to speak in our native language. And yet, the irony here is that when we rely too much on our mother tongue, we risk being jailed by our liberator. Comfort and ease can all too easily lead to roboticism. Our native language is so easy for us to speak that we speak it entirely automatically, without thinking or struggling or puzzling. When we native English speakers say that the Pharaoh hardened his heart, we smooth out the nuances, contradictions, and mysteries encrypted into the original phrases written in Lashon HaKodesh. Yet we unconsciously cling to this anglicized translation, this anglicized interpretation, because it is what we have always heard thrown around the Seder table. With this phrase, the Pharaoh hardened his heart, we not only corrupt the original Hebrew, but we also corrupt the story itself. We turn the complex relationship between Moshe and Pharaoh into a black and white cliche between good and evil, hero and jerk, savior and tyrant. We simplify the Torah. We Disneyfy the Torah. As Rabbi Roberts conveyed, a hell of a lot gets lost when we read the Torah in any other language but the original text, Lashon HaKodesh. Indeed, in our own refusal to open up the Torah and see what was actually written there, are we not hardening our own hearts, engaging in, dare I say, pharaoh-like behavior?